Welcome, listeners. I hope you had the best weekend. And it is good to be back. Oh, yeah. Sitting in my comfy chair, listening to old-time radio horror episodes, and remastering them for your lovely ears. Now, I promise a mega episode due to my absence last week, and folks, I'm giving you a mega episode. Four old-time radio episodes back-to-back, remastered, and tweaked for your ears only. And I wanted to introduce you to a whole new series. A crime series. The Black Museum follows inspectors from Scotland Yard investigating devilish murders with an object as the central point of interest in each episode's plot. It could be a hammer, a pair of scissors, a bag of canvas, or even a tin can of weed killer. So, not only did I want to bring you something big, but I also wanted to bring you something new. Some of these episodes have skips in them, and I've tried to reduce them as much as I could. So instead of recordings like, I'm the tale teller, it sounds like, I'm the tale teller. Sometimes these episodes would have loud flicks, pops, the usual, but sometimes there are random sounds like a horn blasting through the audio. For the life of me, I have no idea why, but I ain't giving you lovelies that as an ear assault. <laughs> Goodness. So those in particular have been delicately removed. Now before I start, of course, I want to thank the legendary White Tea Warlords that support the show. Matthew J. Bauer, the man of power, Maya the mysterious, and divided by Zero, the man, the hero. Thank you three awesome peeps for supporting the show at that level. You're helping the show grow and upping what I can deliver to all the other lovely listeners. In other words, you're all awesome. And my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lee Bauer, Lorraine Crisanto, Mace Joe, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffaelli, and Michelangelo Yacone. A big thank you to you lovelies for keeping the lights on, the sound jamming, and the podcast blamming. Thank you for your support, really. Now, turn the lights off, the radio up, and get ready for... The Warehouse of Homicide. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. The Black Museum. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which housed Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, objects like a sugar bowl, an ashtray, a portable radio, all are touched by murder. There's a hammer. A hammer, that's a familiar object. Everybody's used one at some time to drive a tack, a pull a nail, a loosen the window sash, or what have you. Nearly everybody has at one time or another taken part in a conversation like this. Beg pardon, ma'am. Could you pass me my hammer? Your hammer? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Uh, thank you, ma'am. You're not going to use that hammer on the tiles over my fireplace. No, ma'am. Not on the tiles over the fireplace. <laughs> well, today... A hammer, an ordinary hammer, but with a very strange story attached to it, can be found in the Black Museum.
from the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Here we are, the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. Yes, within this room is proof that anything and everything may be part of homicide. And here lies death. Death entombed in glass. Death on endless shelves. Murder on exhibition. Tabulated, indexed, guarded, filed. Here's a length of wire. Wireless antenna, sleek, shining, coppery, designed to bring pleasure to the human ear. This wire missed the ear. Instead, it was wrapped around a soft, white neck, twisted, perfect carotte. Here's a cigarette lighter. It's dainty, jeweled, monogrammed, stolen from its proper owner, and then flicked, lighted, applied to no cigarette. The victim had a bad heart. Who was to know this? Question, was it murder? Answer. Yes. Ah, here we are. the hammer. It's a claw hammer with two curved blades designed for pulling nails. It's heavy, well-balanced, perfect tool. One Saturday morning, it rested in a canvas bag. The owner rang a doorbell in Oxford. Sorry, ma'am. Did I take you by surprise? Well, yes. You see, I was expecting a friend of mine, and, well, to see a young man standing there when you're expecting an elderly lady... Uh, nothing to take amiss, ma'am. My card. Oh? Oh, thank you. James Knight. House repairs while you wait. Oh, well, thank you, but there's nothing wrong with my house. <laughs> That's what everybody says. Only I don't mean the house itself. I mean the household. Furniture and the like. It's the little things gets people talking. Well, I, I'm sure I don't need anything done. Now you take your doormat, ma'am, right there. Look, along the edges, the binding's going. Notice it now? A stitch in time, as the saying goes, and you'll not be needing a new mat in six months. Well, I do declare. You're right. Now, ma'am, if you'd just let me check your house, I, I'd be willing to bet I'd found a dozen little items. Cost you a few pence now, help me to earn my living, and save you pounds later. Uh, can I come in, ma'am? Thank you. You are a smooth talker, aren't you, young man? Oh, I need to be in my business. Uh, if you'd just show me your living room... Uh, through the portier, right there. Yes, a very nice room. Blends with your personality, if I may say so. <laughs> well, then, right to work. Tools down. Yeah, well, we'll just look about. I'll bet anything you want, I'll find a dozen things need fixing. Now he's inside. He notes the room. Well aware of the brass crucifix on the mantel shelf. Prissy draperies at the windows, the antimacassis on the mahogany-framed horsehair chairs. It's almost a museum. Now you take this chair, man. The leg's loose. Bound to be. The glue dries out. The wood shrinks, you know. Well, I never noticed it. Ah, you wouldn't, ma'am. Takes an expert's eye. A drop of glue today saves a new chair tomorrow. 
And they don't build furniture like this nowadays. No, I dare say they don't. Oh, dear, it's my telephone. No one to answer it? Well, the girl who stays with me has gone to the country. Bank holiday weekend. She won't be back till Monday night. Well, you just answer it. I'll be all right. Oh, but pardon, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Could you pass me my hammer? Your hammer? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Oh, uh, thank you, ma'am. You're not going to use that hammer on the tiles over my fireplace. Oh, no, ma'am. Just tap them with the wooden handle. See if they're loose anywhere. Oh, you can trust me, ma'am. You just answer your telephone. Oh, dear, yes, of course, the telephone. Hello? Why, Caroline! Mrs. Golden, that's her name, answers the telephone. The young man in the living room, front room to Mrs. Golden, taps the tiles merrily, and then he stops. He looks around, looks at things, and quickly in a few things. He shuts the desk just as... Oh, dear, this is a disappointment. Something's wrong with my friend's card. She can't come for me after all, and it is such a nice day. Oh, that is too bad. But not too inconvenient. Now I can really get some work done. Oh? You found a lot of things to repair? About 50 pounds worth. But you said only a few pence today. That was earlier. Now it's going to cost you 50 pounds to get me out of this house. I... I don't understand. I think you do. You know, I know you had 50 pounds in the mail yesterday. You told a couple of your girlfriends, and I heard about it. Now then, Grandma, hand it over. You get out of here. Well, I'll call the police. 50 pounds, here. I will call. Don't try anything. I'm between you and the phone now. Now pay up, Grandma, or, or I'll have to beat it out of you. You wouldn't. You couldn't. No. You heard me. I'm through asking now. Now, where's the money? I, I didn't really get it. I, I was just boasting. Cut it. Put down that vase. Oh, stay away from me. Keep away. Put it down. Uh, throw it. Keep away. Get it. Get away. Fight with me, will you? You haven't had enough, have you? Try this one and this one and this one. Bank holiday in Oxford. No one due home until Monday evening. Someone tried late Sunday. Whoever it was kept trying. But only the bell sounded in the empty house. Empty. Is it filled with death? Monday morning, a man somewhat younger but not much than Mrs. Goldwyn parked his middle-class car in front of the house in Oxford. He had a worried expression on his face as he walked up the few steps and pressed the doorbell. Again he tried. No answer. Ran down the steps around the back. Knocked on the back door. Nothing. Nothing but the sound of his own fists beating the thin panels. Now he is upset. He peers in at the kitchen window... Finally, he wraps his hand in his muffler, as he's seen him do in the movies, and punches a hole in the window. He reaches and unlocks the window, lifts the sash, and climbs in. He walks through the house toward the front. Silence, save for his own strangely empty footsteps. At the tears in the arch which lead to the living room, he stops. Good heavens! What's this? It's... Oh, it's... it's blood! 
operator. Please, hurry. Put me through the Scotland Yard. There's, there's been a... My sister's been murdered. Well, that's how it comes, you know. First the bitter shock, the cry on the telephone, the hurried, incoherent report, and then the cars racing through the streets, pulling up the men, piling out, invading a once peaceful home. Mrs. Golden, your sister, Mr. Bevan. That's right. I can't understand it, Inspector. I just can't. I know how you must feel. And you want to help us all you can. Of course, of course. Well, well, then, time is very often the essence. I'll have to ask you a few questions right away. I'll try to answer them. You told us you broke the back window yourself, right? Yes, that's right. When she didn't answer the phone Sunday evening, I began to worry. I drove here this morning. The doors were locked and no one answered the bell. I, I broke in. I suppose I should have called a constable, but I didn't... I understand. Tell me, Mr. Bevan, did your sister have any enemies? Of course not. Pardon me, Inspector. We found this under the crucifix on the mantel. It's 50 pounds. Thank you, Sergeant. Apparently, robbery was the motive. Mr. Bevan, do you happen to know where your sister would get 50 pounds? She had a small income. Perhaps the money was a dividend. Preliminary medical report, Inspector. Go ahead, Doctor. Well, death occurred about 48 hours ago. Make it Saturday in the morning. We'll tell more after the autopsy. Saturday? Two days start on us. Go on, Doctor. She was struck on the head by a blunt instrument several times. A hammer or something of that sort. But the fellow was taking no chances. Her carotid artery was severed by something very sharp. That's why the blood. Whoever it was, well, it looks very professional, the way the place was ransacked. We've nothing much here. But uh, shall we have a gird it, Sergeant? Well, they had a go at it, the inspector and the sergeant. There's nothing in the woman's house. Not even a smudged fingerprint. But, as Sergeant Marshall put it... I've seen this sort of thing before. Looks like a house-to-house canvasser to me, Inspector. It has that familiar feel about it. Routine, Sergeant. Routine. Door-to-door, up and down the streets. Questions, questions, questions. Did a canvasser call here Saturday morning, ma'am? Leave a card or anything? Do you remember anyone ringing the bell to leave a card, sir? Wanting to do repair work. Thank you, miss. Yes, you've been quite helpful. Five houses up the street, five down the street. And strangely enough, results. A bit too careful, Mr. Knight. Too careful, Inspector? And too smart for himself. He left his card at all the houses on the street. And this one in the middle, he picked up the card before he left Saturday morning. Foolish. Bound to attract attention to himself. Knight. James Knight. It's familiar. Joe Knowles. His favorite alias is James Knight. Oh, I remember now, sir. Two years in Dartmoor. Assault and battery on an elderly lady. Right. Well, call for a car, Sergeant. We may as well check the address on this card. Mr. Knight? Oh, yes. Used to live here. I see. Used to live here. Well, been packed up and gone these two months now. Quiet sort of fella. Though I didn't cotton to him much. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much. Welcome, I'm sure. Not two days behind, Inspector. Two months. We're not doing too badly, Sergeant. We know when and how he got in. We know how he committed the crime. And we've got a good idea who he is. Not too badly, Sergeant. Oh, not too badly. But the Inspector forgot to mention the most important clue of all. The murder weapon. That self-same hammer. 
which can be seen today in the Black Museum. It looked like a long haul, two months behind and no trace. Not a thing to place him in Oxford on the Saturday of bank holiday. The calling card's true, but they might have been left any time. And one confused witness would make any jury doubt the exact pinpointing of the date. Still, the man had to be found. Scotland Yard began its long, steady, methodical routine. Circulate Knight's description from his prison record. Have prints made of his picture. Somebody will remember him somewhere. They always do. Somebody did. The landlord of a tavern in Oxford, half a mile from the house where death had struck that Saturday morning. I remember that fellow. Certainly do. You're sure now? Positive. Come in here, looked like he needed a drink. Took two whiskies, straight. One right after the other. Was carrying a tool bag of some kind, I think. How long did he stay? Just till a bus stopped outside. He threw the price on the bar and hopped the bus real quick-like. You happen to know where the bus was hit? Aylesbury. No other bus stops right outside that door. A break in the luck. Aylesbury. The town was investigated, to all practical intents and purposes. Before long, Inspector Graham and Sergeant Marshall were in the lobby of a small rundown hotel talking with a combination desk clerk and telephone operator. Do you remember Mr. Knight, Miss Marsh? Oh, I do that. Of course, he's not the kind I'd pay much attention to. But I remember him all right. Is he in trouble? Why do you ask? Oh, well, sort of. Well, you know how it is. A man leaves here sudden-like after being in and out for a couple of months. Then a couple of fellows come looking for him. Well, you wonder, that's all. We're from Scotland Yard, miss. Oh, then he is in trouble. Maybe, maybe not. We'd like a look at his room. I'll show you. Just one flight up. Davy, watch my board. I'm busy. This way, gentlemen. An obliging girl, Miss Marsh. Complete with bass key, she ushered the man up the worn stairway along the dim hall. She fitted the key. Swung open the door. There you are, Inspector. Thank you, Miss. Seem to have left a bit of baggage, Inspector. So he has. This is nights, isn't it, Miss? Oh. Oh, didn't I mention it? Oh, he said he'd probably be back. So would I mind if he left his bag? Even though he didn't want to keep on with the room rent. So I left it here, just in case he came back before we left the room. Nice of you. Open it, Sergeant. Uh, not locked. Well, careless type of fellow. A new hammer. Nothing much else. Look around, Sergeant. Look around. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, funny. This book, sir, in the bag. A dictionary. I dare say night isn't a book one. Odd. It's a dictionary. Look a bit further, Sergeant. Yes, sir. Anything familiar about this, Miss Marsh? I was waiting for you to ask me, sir. It's mine. He borrowed it one night after he came in with the newspapers. Oh, newspapers. Oh, yes, sir. He was a great one for the papers, especially the Globe News. He'd been a fury if we didn't save one for him at the desk. I see. Did he do much writing up here? Well, now that you mention it, sir, he did. Lots of letters, always to the papers. Do you suppose he wrote those dear editor things? No, I doubt that, but I have a fair idea what he did write. Anything else, Sergeant? Not a thing, sir. Clean as a whistle. Back to the yard, sir. Back to the yard. Ah, the man said. Ah, indeed. 
hammer which may be a murder weapon side by side with a dictionary, a possible killer writing letters to the editor. Or were they letters to the editor? Inspector tackled the hammer first. Canvas every ironmonger and hardware dealer in Oxford. Find out which carries this make of hammer. Check their sales slips for that particular Saturday. Try to jog the salesman's memories. Find out where that hammer came from. And then the dictionary. The newspapers and the mail. Ever look into the Globe News, Sergeant? Sometimes, sir. I'm not much of a crossword puzzle fan myself. <laughs> yes, Sergeant. Our Joe Knowles, alias James Knight, is obviously a crossword puzzle addict. I think we're due for a literary detail at the Globe News, with samples of our friend's handwriting from his prison record. Hop to it, Sergeant, and keep your eyes open. It turned out to be quite a problem. 10,000 entries per week in the Globe News' puzzle contest with the average number. Not a pleasant prospect. And at all. Stolidly, the crew from the yard started to go through 10,000 puzzles, checking against the photostatic copies of James Knight's handwriting. The second morning of the job. Inspector Graham here. Sergeant Marshall, sir, at the newspaper. You found something, Sergeant? Not in the file, sir. In the morning mail. From Brighton. An entry in the latest contest. Address, 912 Leader Street. Name of John Kinder. But there's no mistaking the handwriting. They'll do it every time, won't they? Joe Knowles, James Knight, now John Kinder. Yes, sir, I noticed. Always the same initials on the aliases. J.K. this time. Bring the puzzle and the envelope. I'll have him picked up in Brighton. Uh, 912 Leader Street, you said? 912 Leader Street, Brighton, England. The order moved swiftly now on the teletype, along the wires and the banks of the Thames, across the North Downs, the famous resort city on the English Channel. Open up in there. Quick enough, police. No need for all the melodrama, sir. You were looking for me? You're James Knight, also known as Joe Nose and John Kinder. You ought to know, officer. You're wanted, Knight. You'll have to come along. I have to warn you, anything you say may be taken down and used in evidence against you. You did a good job, Sultan, picking him up so quickly. He came along with surprising quietness, sir. The fellow probably knows we've little to build a case on. Hello, what's this? It looks like a hole in the floor, Sergeant. I know, sir. But there's four more in the floor, sir. Square holes. Now, the floor is the ceiling of the room below. Oh? Who lives below, Sultan? The landlady. Eccentric soul. We've warned her several times. She will keep her rent money in a jar on the mantelpiece. So that's why he watched her. That's your theory, Sergeant? Well, you can see every corner of that room, sir, through these holes. And they're recent. Well, the wood's still fresh and white, Inspector. Square holes. Why? When you dig a hole with a chisel, Selden, you not only get a square hole, you also can keep the shavings from falling in the room below. A chisel? Where would he have ditched it? Possibly through the window when you knocked. A chisel, Selden, is sharp enough to cut other things beside wood. A carotid artery, for instance. So you prepared a statement, Knight? Yes, Inspector. I've been informed of the charge you may lodge against me. I'm told it entails a murder in Oxford on the Saturday of the bank holiday. That's correct. You'll find my movements for that day accounted for in my statement. It may be troublesome locating some of my witnesses, but uh, I doubt if you'll have much difficulty. You were in that street in Oxford, though. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Trying to make an honest living, sir. No doubt. 
Strange you failed to leave a card at Mrs. Golden's. I rang several times on my way up and down the street. No answer. And you didn't push it under the door? No. Cards are expensive, Inspector. I prefer to explain my business first and leave a card if there's any interest. You're, um, having this taken down, aren't you, Inspector? You got all this, Sergeant? Oh, yes, sir. And we'll enter night's statement in the record also. Yes, sir. I, uh... See no reason for holding me any longer? Do you, Inspector? You'll be quite comfortable. No rent to pay, Knight. Just until we check your alibi and find your witnesses. After that, Knight, well, we'll see. All right, Sergeant. Take this man back. The end of a trail. The suspect perfectly at ease, willing, even slightly overwilling. But they held him anyway. There were still some loose ends to tie up. One of those ends might be the key to the puzzle. One of those ends just might be the end of a hangman's noose. We've got a report on the hammer, Inspector. At last, eh? Where? How? An ironmonger in Oxford sold a hammer from his stock. Ah, ah here's a sample. Uh, to a fellow answering Knight's description on bank holiday Saturday, sir. The sales slip is dated and the salesman is prepared to identify. The slip also includes a chisel. I see. Seems identical to the one we've had. What's this label? Uh, the salesman says it's all on this type. High-class steel forging. Nothing in ours, is there? Oh, no, sir. Let's have a look in that valise we found the hammer in at Dell's. Yes, sir. An empty traveling bag. Just lint. A few tiny crumbs of something. They might have been dried dough or... Even breadcrumbs, Inspector. Or paper, Sergeant. Would you pass me the sponge there? The one for sealing envelopes? I think there's enough water in the dish. Gently now, Inspector. Moisten the tiny pellets of dough-like substance on the glass top of your desk. Gently now. Roll them back and forth. Loosen them. Spread them out on the desktop. Slowly. Gently. Patiently. And then... We'd better have this photograph, Sergeant. I doubt if we can preserve them for the trial. Yes, sir. We've broken his alibi. Knight was in Oxford that day. He bought the hammer. High-class steel forging. He should have burnt this label, Sergeant, not merely crumbled it in this way. I do believe our careful Mr. Knight, our clever, cooperative Mr. Knight, is going to be hung, and very shortly at that. Well, today, that hammer, complete with the proper label, can be seen in the Black Museum. Inspector Graham was right. The hammer, plus the label, did hang James Knight. His alibi was broken by the salesman in the hardware store in Oxford, who sold Jim Knight that hammer. On the Saturday, Mrs. Golden died. Inspector Graham needn't have worried about his case, nor need you worry about the hammer in your kitchen drawer. If there is any moral to this story beyond the inevitable lesson that criminals are nearly always caught, it's this. Be careful whom you let in your house when you're alone to demonstrate a new gadget or even to fix your furniture. Your visitor might mean death. And now until we meet next time in the same place for another story about the Black Museum, I remain as always obediently yours. This is Orson Welles.
speaking from London. The Black Museum, a repository of death. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames which houses Scotland Yard is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a package of cigarettes, a length of string, a linen napkin, all are touched by murder. It's a Gladstone bag. It's a familiar object. Every railroad train carries several, inevitably useful, compact, and expandable. They always hold more than they seem. They're perfect for vacation. Perfect also for... If you look inside, Inspector, just uh, try the two halves apart at one end, as I did. Yes, I see. Well, odd objects to have in a valise. Not if one had every intention of disposing of them, Inspector. Today, that Gladstone bag can be seen in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. In just a moment, you will hear the Black Museum... Starring Orson Museum starring Orson Welles. Well, here we are in the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's mausoleum of murder. There are times, as I open this door, you know, that I feel the old familiar inscription should be carved on the lintel. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Yes, abandon hope of peaceful, quiet, dreamless sleep. For within this room is almost every instrument which ever has been used for the commission of the foul deed called murder. Yes, here lies death. No doubt about it. You feel it in the dull, oppressive atmosphere. You see it first marked calmly on the neatly lettered cards. So-and-so died by this instrument at the hands of so-and-so dated and so forth. Your glance passes to the thing itself. You almost feel the blood. Here's a camera. Ordinary tourist snapshot-taking camera. Yet within the blackness of this box, the film registered two faces. A third person saw a print. And from that recognition, three people died. One by a hangman's rope. There's a briar pipe, well-smoked, thoroughly discolored, a pleasure to a pipe smoker, but no pleasure to the man who inhaled hydrocyanic gas with his tobacco, nor to the killer, trapped by the pipe itself. Ah, here we are, the Gladstone bag, piece of luggage for a man. It looks so commonplace, so much as if it belonged to a traveling salesman, not to Jim Hudson. 
Of course, in a way, Jim was a traveling salesman. He certainly had a sales talk. And he was quite successful at it. Sally, I've never seen you looking lovelier. Oh, Jimmy, you always do that. Do what, sweetheart? Say things like that, just when I want to pick a fight with you. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I love you so much. Despite your wife and everything else. Everything else? That's what I wanted to fight with you about. We... Well, we just can't go on like this, Jimmy, darling. Why not? We're as happy as circumstances. Don't you see, Jimmy? A woman wants at least a snatch of domesticity, not just clandestine meetings with the clock ticking away her happiness in the background. It'll come, darling. It'll come. The girl was right, of course, from her point of view. Granted that the relationship between her and the man she loved was, well, outside the recognized bounds. Granted that they found each other when it seemed too late. Still, the girl was right. She wanted a certain sense of security which can come to a woman only through the small things of making coffee in the morning while a man was shaving with an earshot. And Sally James was the kind of girl who took action when she wanted something badly enough. Jim, what about the week we planned together for this spring? I probably could get away, darling, if we had a place to go. I have the place. Anyway, the ad about it. You are something, aren't you? Here, darling. I found this in the Sunday paper. Go on, read it. For rent. Bungalow. The beaches. Pevensey Bay, Eastbourne. Reasonable by the week. You've got your heart set on this, haven't you, sweet? Can we do it? The week of Epoutois. All right? All right. Oh, Jimmy, it'll be heaven down there by the sea. Heaven by the sea. Poor girl, one of those human beings who believes with all her heart that dreams can become reality. Perhaps it was just as well that Sally didn't see her gym some two evenings later in a quiet little restaurant not more than three blocks from the place she'd given Jim her precious clipping. Rhoda, my darling, I've never seen you looking lovelier. Oh, come off it, Jimmy. That kind of romancing just isn't in my style. You're a woman, aren't you? Well, you ought to know, Jimmy boy. And how? Thanks. Look, Rhoda. I've taken a cottage at Pevensey Bay. Oh, how inconvenient to have to travel all that distance. Not for weekends, it isn't. Inconvenient. Well, the daring young man on the flying trapeze. <laughs> Would you like weekends by the sea, Rhoda? Why not? I think it'd be fun. Nice place. Called the Beaches. Old garden, private bathing beach. Sounds marvellous. I thought you'd like it. Well, I can't make it this weekend. Neither can I. How about the weekend of the 16th? We'd go down Friday afternoon, come back early Monday morning. There's a very early train. It's a deal, Jim. It really is a deal. A clever rascal, Jim Hudson, without a doubt. Knows his way with the ladies. But he cuts his margins rather close, doesn't he? Not the dates. April 12th, the week. It's Sally. Friday the 16th with Rhoda. Well, that's hardly a full week with Sally. But, of course, Sally doesn't know about this on Friday noon the 9th as she stands in the doorway of the railway carriage in Waterloo Station. You will be down by Monday, won't you, Jimmy, dear? Sooner than that, if I can. You know that, darling. I guess I feel like a little girl on her first trip alone. 
I'm sorry it has to be this way. Oh, I don't mind, really. I'll have a chance to put the cottage in shape. Have it all clean and comfortable for my man. When I saw it, there weren't any tools there. And there's always something to fix. I'd better add tools to my shopping list. Oh, and don't forget the traveling iron I asked you for, dear. And please hurry to get down and... Oh, kiss me. Quick, Jimmy, the train's leaving. Oh, Jimmy, dearest. Bye, darling. See you Monday. Monday it'll be. Take care, darling. Take care. Watch him as he walks up the platform. The train is already disappearing from the track. Jim has his hands in his pockets. He's whistling merrily, a man with nothing on his mind except his love affair and the prospect of the week ahead. He leaves the station, walks up the street a ways, pauses before a hard wish. What was it he added to his shopping list? Oh, yes. Tools. He enters the shop. May I assist you, sir? Yes, yes, I think you can. What do you wish? Uh, you've got some fine-looking knives in the window. May I see them? Any particular blade size up? I think, um, yes, yes, the ten-inch carver will be about right. Very well, sir. There we are, sir. Best Sheffield steel, hollow ground, razor sharp, and guaranteed to hold temper. It will take very little honing to keep the edge, sir. Mm, very efficient looking. But you prefer the bone or the plastic handle? Bone, I think. Very good, sir. Is there anything else? I think, um... Yes, a, a small cross-cut saw. Small, about 18 inches. Perfect. Excellent quality, as you can hear. Good. Would you wrap them, please? But then that will be six and four, sir. I'll just make up the slip. You'll have your package in a moment. Jim Hudson took his package on the train with him on Monday morning. And tea time at the beaches, Pevensey Bay promised to be exciting and wonderful. Isn't this wonderful, Jimmy? I discovered the path to the top of the cliff on Sunday. Oh, Jimmy, it's paradise. It is a nice view. And so alone, so private. This is our private view, darling. It's like a honeymoon. You are a sweet little thing, Sally. Very sweet. I know. When you call me sweet, you think of me as a child. But I love you as a woman, Jimmy. I know. Shall we go back now? It looks like it may kick up a storm. If you want to, darling. Whatever you want. Whatever he wants, Sally. But does he know what he wants, this man with a wife in London, you at the beaches, and still a third woman waiting to join him just four days it's too bad the beach isn't sand. Oh, I don't know. Shale isn't bad. Funny about this place. Funny? How, darling? Do you remember the Doris Clark case? Who was she? She's the reason the beaches was available. I don't understand. She lived here. Two men she knew came down. She was beaten. Buried alive in the shale. The men hung. How horrible. They made a lot of mistakes, or they mightn't have been caught. People shy away from a house with that kind of a story. I don't care. We'll change its reputation, then, with our love. Let's go inside, dear. It's getting chilly with the sun gone and the storm coming up. The storm came, the rain pounded on the roof, the wind lashed at the sea. 
and within the cottage called the Beaches. All was sound and warm. I love a fire in a fireplace. Don't you, Jimmy, darling? Yes, I suppose I do. Oh, Jim. Am I being too sticky? Sentimental? Trifle. What's wrong, Jimmy? You've been, well, far away today. Sally, let's face it. Things like this never go on for long. Jim! Jimmy, I don't believe you said that. I did say it. I mean it. Then why did you bring me down here? It was your idea. I went along with it, hoping we could work something out. Work it out? It's past the... You just... You never loved me. Stop crying. I can't stand crying. I ruined my life for you. Now you want to just forget about me. Stop it. Grow up. You can't be infantile forever. You want your cake and to have it too. You want your wife and other women. You won't. I won't let you. Stop it, Sally. I told you to stop it. Jim, no. No, I didn't mean it. I'll do whatever you want. I'll go away and never see you again. I'll... Jim, don't touch me. Jim, please. Jim. Jimmy. The scene was set save for one vital piece of evidence, the black Gladstone bag, which can be seen today in the Black Museum. In just a moment, we will continue with the Black Museum, starring Orson Continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. Friday, the 16th of April, dawned fine and clear. A calm, gay Jim Hudson made his way, whistling as usual through the weekend-bound crowds of Waterloo Station. Well, here you are, my good man. <laughs> Glad you think I'm a good man. <laughs> I am. Uh, yeah. I think you are. <laughs> By Monday morning, I'll know. <laughs> then let's make that train, baby. Pevensey Bay on number seven. The train to Pevensey Bay was none too fast for Jim and Rhoda. It was a fine spring day. It was a beautiful spring evening. 
Moonlight made the rollers on the beach gleam with a lovely phosphorescence. On the porch of the cottage, known as the beaches. Know something, Jimmy boy? I know lots of things, old girl. What, for instance? Oh, this. If I were the romantic type, this place would make me go all gooey. But you're not? No, I'm not. All your misconceptions of women notwithstanding. Then you want to waste all this moonlight and romance? Oh, come, darling. If you must whisper sweet nothings, come and whisper them. Why not out here? Because I don't feel comfortable on the shale. Come on now. Always let the woman have her way, particularly after she's cooked a beautiful dinner. Here now. I'm the only beautiful thing around here this weekend. And you are, Rhoda. You are. What a way you have. In here, darling. No, no, not in there. It's a, it's a spare room, not made up. I want to see it. Oh, nothing in there. Are you going to deny me anything, darling? It's locked. I... Uh... Oh, Jimmy. No. Say, what are you? Bluebeard or something? Maybe I am. The door stayed locked. The weekend at Pevensey Bay was quite successful. But now the scene changes to a London street lined with somewhat shabby buildings which house somewhat shabby offices. Into one of those buildings a woman hurries almost furtively. She climbs the stairs, one flight, walks into an office, door of which announces in gold lettering, Cross Detective Agency. You are Mr. Cross? I am. What can I do for you, Mrs. Uh... Mrs. Uh, oh, my ring. Yes, an old trick. Uh, sit down, won't you? Thank you. My name is Lillian Hudson, Mrs. Lillian Hudson. I see. Well, how can I help you? I, uh, I want some information on my husband, James Hudson. Go on, please. I saw your advertisement. Were you formerly with Scotland Yard? I was. Advancement seems slow. I'm working for myself now. Yes. Well, I have reason to believe that my husband has been, well, seeing other women. Oh, and you want me to get the evidence? I think so. A divorce action? Perhaps. It depends on the results. And you want to stay in the background? For the present. Oh, have you anything on which I can start? Uh, an address? Lead of any kind? I have this. A baggage check. Waterloo Station baggage storage. Stamp 10 a.m. Friday, April 16th. An innocent bit of baseball. Where did you get this, Mrs. Hudson? I took one of my husband's suits to the cleaner. This was in a pocket. The cleaner gave it to me. Oh, and why should this mean anything? Because Jim, my husband, was away the entire week of the 12th until the morning of the 19th. It came to me, if he had told the truth, how could he have checked something at Waterloo on the 16th if he were out of town all that week? Yeah, an interesting observation, Mrs. Hudson. Well, suppose I go over to Waterloo Station and pick up whatever was checked there. Oh, and uh, <clears throat> sorry to mention this, but uh, it is customary to have a retainer. You know? Private Detective Cross, once of Scotland Yard, went on over to Waterloo Station and presented the baggage check. A short while later, he arrived in the office of Inspector Henley. The yard. Oh, yes, Cross. I remember you now. Ah, oh, thank you, Inspector. You were with us once, weren't you? Yes, sir. 
Yeah, there are times, Cross, when I wish I had the gumption to strike out on my own. Too late now, however. And there are times, Inspector, when I wish I'd stayed on here. However... Yes, to each his own, and the grass is always greener, and so on. Well, Sergeant Anderson said you wanted to show me something. Oh, yeah, this. This Gladstone bag. Hmm. Looks perfectly normal. Locked, I see. Yes, if you look inside, Inspector, just uh, pry the two halves apart at one end, as I did. Yes, I see. Odd objects to heaven of the least. Not if one had every intention of disposing of them, Inspector. You're probably right about that. Seems like some sook or something. And badly stained. If I were a gambling man, I'd give ten to one the stains of blood, sir. And it wouldn't be much of a gamble. Any ideas on what the metal objects are? Well, I flashed my penlight in there, sir. One is a carving knife, and the other is a carpenter's saw. I see. How did you come into possession of this bag, sir? And Mrs. Hudson found the check for it in her husband's pocket. She says the cleaner found it. I doubt that. Divorce action, I assume. Correct, sir. I understand. Well, my suggestion is this. We'll give you another stub. Give it to Mrs. Hudson and have her place it in her husband's pocket. When he comes back for the bag, we'll have a man ready to pick him up. It seems to me this little matter bears further investigation. So simple, so quietly effective. Just place a check for baggage in a man's pocket. When he comes to claim his Gladstone bag. Yes, sir. Oh, here's my check. It's a brown Gladstone. Left it three days ago. Just a moment, sir. Sergeant Anderson, sir. Yes? It's the check you've been waiting for, that fellow there, whistling. Thank you. Give him the bag. I'll speak to him. Yes, that's my bag. Oh, that'll be two and six, sir, for overtime storage. Oh, here we are. Thank you, sir. Glad to oblige. Uh, excuse me, sir. You James Hudson? That's right. Who are you? Uh, Sergeant Anderson, Scotland Yard. My credentials. If you would be good enough to come with me. What for? Uh, Inspector Hendy would like to see you. He's waiting at the police station, just a block or two from the station here. Well, I've got my bag here. Couldn't it wait tomorrow, or...? Uh, that's all right, Mr. Hudson. I'll carry your bag. The squad room at the police station near Waterloo was very quiet. Inspector Hanley sat behind a battered desk on the desk rest of the Gladstone bag, open now, and next to it a file, a familiar dossier from the criminal records office. We have your file, as you see, Hudson. I see. Step, burglary... Five years for criminal assault. Does your wife know about these things, Hudson? No, she doesn't. I see. Hudson, how do you account for the contents of this bag? I, um, I was butchering half a steer for a friend of mine in the country. He has a deep freeze. Oh, that's rather thin, Hudson. Did you wear a silk dress size 10 to butcher the steer in? It was his wife's. I'm having it cleaned at a special place I know of. Yes, yes, of course. Better try again, Hudson. There was no answer. There were no further questions. Inspector Henley knew his man. Time ticked away. The clock was quite loud. For an hour it ticked in silence. Finally the perspiration began to bead his forehead. Jim Hudson began to talk. All right, Inspector. I'll tell you. I guess I lost my head when she flew at me. Oh, size 10 and she flew at you, Hudson. I told her we were through, that I was going back to my wife. 
She heaved the coal scuttle. Then it... It was at the beaches at Pevensey Bay on April 13th, sir. She grabbed the poker. I defended myself. We had a devil of a struggle. She fell, struck her head on the andiron. She was dead. I must have gone completely crazy. I, I went into town, but, but that knife and, and the saw, I was afraid to tell anyone. I mean, my record. And... He said in this bedroom, Sergeant. I've got something here, Inspector. In this biscuit tin. Yes, you have. Neat packing job, I must say. <laughs> Not much left of the poor girl, is there? I want a check of every hardware store in the neighborhood where Hudson lives. Uh, oh, yes, near the railway station. Got that, Sergeant? I want the sales slip on those implements and the clerk who sold them, if possible. Yes, Inspector, I remember the incident perfectly. The fellow came in whistling, asked about the knives in the window. He bought one, then asked for a small saw. Here's the slip, sir. Well, this says April the 9th. Hudson claims he didn't buy these things until the 13th. It was the 9th, Inspector. I'll stake my life on that. It's no good, Hudson. You bought that knife and that saw on Friday the 9th. You went to Pevensey Bay prepared to do exactly what you did do. If we ever had evidence of premeditation, we've got it now. You're under arrest, charged with willful murder. And I must warn you that anything you say may be used in evidence. Each clue in its place. The case was complete. Closed as tightly as that same Gladstone bag. Which can be found today in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. There was no question about it. Jim Hudson, despite his claim, the usual claim of accidental death, was convicted of homicide and sentenced to the brief but final walk at eight o'clock one winter morning. On the scaffold, his feet bound, the white hood already in its place over his head, the rope with its knot of thirteen coils around his neck, Jim Hudson lunged forward, trying to escape the trap. The executioner pulled the lever, the trap fell. Jim was pulled backward, striking his head against the wooden flooring. He may have died before the rope had its customary effect. However, the Gladstone bag is still to be found in its customary place in Scotland Yard, in the Black Museum. Till we meet again next time, in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obediently yours. The 
Black Museum, starring Orson Welles, is presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Radio Attractions. The program is written by Ara Marion, with original music composed and conducted by Sidney Torch. Produced by Harry Allen Towers. Superintendent, whether the poison in weed killer deteriorates or becomes stronger with the passage of time. Well, I'm not certain, Inspector. Any chemist could answer that, I imagine. In this situation, some chemists will have to answer that. Well, today, that can of weed killer can be seen in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Here we are. The Black Museum, Scotland Yard's mausoleum of murder. Yes, here lies death. Here it is, preserved in objects which seem to reflect the horror of the crimes in which they once played their part. Here's an arrow, four feathered, tapered, cleanly steel-tipped. It's a graceful object made for flight and skill in an ancient art. Even in the act which brought it here, this weapon was thwarted. No arching bow sent it on its way. A powerful hand thrust sharply in the dark. And this arrow turned dagger and stabbed the life away. And here's a chalice. Jewels, lovely. It's a work of art. Art defined it here. And yet this achievement of the goldsmith's skill carried murder within its curving bowl. Yes. Now here we are. Here's the tin of weed killer. Dried up now, its contents are forever useless for any purpose. Still, was the poison that once contained any more powerful for evil than the hidden poison which flowed through the place where this tale took place? It was, in fact, a lovely place, an English village, 
its single street strung like a hammock between two hills, on one of which stand the remains of an ancient Norman castle. An ideal place to live, one would say, as John Ashley very often said to his wife Helen, his daughter Joy. Remember, Helen, how we used to wish for a life like this when we were struggling in London? <laughs> Before you came to us, Joy, my dear. I remember. You've accomplished it for us, John. You may clear the table, Sarah. Very well, ma'am. From all the stories you've told, Dad, I'll never marry a young lawyer. Oh, you might do worse. You might do worse than that. <gasps> oh, What's oh, the matter, Helen? Oh, oh, that pain again, John. Oh, it'll pass. As soon as I've had some tea. I wish you'd see Dr. Gordon about this, Helen. It worries me. Oh, yes, a very nice place to live. And a nice family in the house on the slope of the hill. An occasional complaint, of course. Even an occasional disagreement, but everything quite normal. Except to certain people in the village below. Why, he won't let his wife join our garden club. I never understand. Never. And she does exactly as he tells her. And the way she's under his thumb. No woman would permit it unless she was deathly afraid of something. That was Mrs. Brooks. Very interested in gardening, Mrs. Brooks. Her husband sells the gardening tools and materials locally. Very interested in better trees and flowers. I was her first friend in the village. I watched her just waste away. It must be his fault. You know, sometimes I believe he beats her. Miss Goodson, that was a worthy soul. If she read more books, perhaps she'd have less time on her hands. As it is, she has a bit too much time on her hands. Do you know, I heard just the other day that John Ashley... Don't doubt it, not for a minute. Wait till Martha Gordon hears of this. Well, I'd like not to believe it, but if you tell me, Tina... No question, my dear. No respect authority, my own eyes. Is there something to be done? That was, well, the climate of public opinion, at least on the disturbed side at the time of the Sunday luncheon in the Ashley House. Ah, an excellent luncheon, Helen, my dear. You must compliment Cook. Oh, oh, John. I, what? I think I'm going to faint. Helen. Mother. Oh, he's taking me to the side. I, I can't breathe. Oh, oh, the Helen, Helen, the wine. Mother, let me get you. Try quickly. Get Dr. Gordon at once. If you have to, take the car and fetch him. All right, Dad, of course. Helen, I'm getting you to bed. Sarah, please help me. Mrs. Ashley's taken ill. Take her arm, Sarah. Gently now. Carefully, gently, they took Helen Ashley up to her bedroom. The doctor came at Joy's urgent, even tearful call. But the doctor wasn't half as alarmed as the family. Oh, I don't believe there's really anything to worry about. Gastric disturbances can be painful, but my prescription will ease her. In the meantime, company will take her mind off the pain, or what's left of it. And it will do her good to see Miss Goodson. <laughs> A little gossip never hurt any woman. If you need me, I'll be available, and I'll drop... However, the good Miss Goodson was not as easily satisfied as the doctor... She stayed with Helen Ashley some 15 minutes and then entered the living room to announce. Of course, it's really not my business, except I've grown so fond of your wife since you've been living here. What is it, Miss Goodson? 
Well, since you ask, she's a lot more ill than you or David Gordon seem to think. I suggest a nurse at once. Do you really think so? But the doctor said... I don't use words lightly, Mr. Ashley. And I've been around illness all my life. I nursed my father for ten years. I know sickness when I see it. And I know just the woman, Nurse Thomas. She's just a practical, but very efficient. Nurse Thomas came to the Ashley house at once and took charge of the patient. However, a little before nine o'clock that evening... I'm sorry to disturb you, Mr. Ashley, but I have to leave now. Really, Nurse? I was under the impression you would stay overnight, at least. I can't. I have my children. They'll have had no dinner until I get home, and my mother, past 80, you know. Is my wife resting well? Quite easily. She complained that Dr. Gordon's medicine caught at the back of her throat, but oh, that means nothing. I'm sorry, but I'll have to leave. I'll be back first thing tomorrow. The Ashley household retired for the night. John left the nightlight burning in the bedroom. looked at his wife. Then he stumbled at the door of Joy's room and knocked. Dad! What is it? Joy, I... Your mother is dead. Helen Ashley passed away in her sleep. There was mourning in the house on the slope of the hill. In the village below... I knew it. I told him she was desperately ill. I told him. It's too bad. Such a nice little person. So sweet. How could she have married that that man? I hope they find him out. Never even a civil good day to a person. Do you really suppose there is something suspicious? I wouldn't put it past him. Why, Nurse Thomas says... I felt something strange the moment I walked in the door. If I had any influence with my brother, I'd have made him refuse to sign a death certificate. Heart disease. It was talk. Idle talk. At least it seemed so at first. But it had its effect. It accumulated as some poisons do. And it had a result. As some poisons do. Here's another of these letters, Superintendent. Oh, any signature this time? Yes, sir. That's a change. Who's it from? It's signed by Nurse Thomas. It's a bit vague, sir, but on the same lines as the other anonymous letters which we've already received. Oh, all right. Well, let me have a look at it. Dear Sir, I have come to the conclusion that it is my duty to draw your attention to the rumors which are common knowledge throughout the neighborhood concerning Mr. Ashley and the recent death of his wife, Helen. I can claim to have a personal knowledge of the case, as I was the nurse in charge. What do you make of that, Sergeant? There's certainly nothing anonymous about this letter, sir. I feel that you should know my suspicions are shared by friends and neighbors of the Ashleys, and that all of us consider it our duty that justice should be done. Yours truly, etc., Ah, that justice should be done. Oh, well, we shall see. Sergeant. Yes, sir? I think we'd better have a little talk with Nurse Thomas. So you believe, Nurse, that the police ought to look into this? I certainly do. There must be some reason back of all this talk. 
Where's this smoke, you know, superintendent? Nurse Thomas, may I remind you that I didn't get to the rank of superintendent of this district by listening to rumours. Have you any facts? Well, I'm not a detective. Well, tell me what you know, nurse. Sarah Freeman, she's the Ashley housemaid, swears that he didn't drink any of the wine at lunch. That was hardly his custom. Go on. I've been on a good many cases. This one was really peculiar. The doctor wasn't disturbed any more than her husband was. But she died at two in the morning. The whole thing is highly suspicious. And Sarah thinks... Now, never mind the rumours, nurse. However, I may make a few inquiries. The superintendent knew his duty. He took the liberty of asking John Ashley to stop in and chat with him. You realise, of course, Mr. Ashley, that this is strictly on an informal basis. I can think of no reason why it should be formal. Well, there have been reports, rumours. I dare say you've heard a few. I've heard all of them. In fact, to spare my daughter, I have sent her up to London to stay with a cousin for a while. Yes, it is most distressing. I assume, Mr. Ashley, you would like to set all this gossip at rest and put an end to it once and for all. Nothing would be a greater relief to me. Have you any... Uh... Suggestion, Superintendent? Yes, I have. It's drastic. But, uh, well, if all is well, as I have a reason to believe, it may be unpleasant, but it would certainly be effective. What is it, sir? Exhumation of your wife's body and a post-mortem, with your express approval. As you wish, sir. I shall be glad to cooperate in every way possible. The vital step had been taken. From now on, John Ashley was engaged in a fight for his life. Much was against him, and not the least was a tin of weed killer, which can be seen today in the Black Museum. They did not permit Helen Ashley to rest for long. The exhumation order was signed and the postmortem proceeded. Shortly thereafter, a coroner's inquest was held. The jury were all natives of the district, of course. All of them with some contact with the rumors which seemed to grow wilder and more frequent as the secrecy continued. There were three witnesses at the inquest. First, Dr. David Gordon himself. Yes, I performed the postmortem and the subsequent analyses. What did he find? My findings were confirmed by the analyst for the Home Office, to whom I transmitted them through the superintendent of police, together with the necessary items for his own tests. And the report, Doctor? Helen Ashley's body contained 18 milligrams of arsenic, sufficient indeed to cause death. Mr. Brooks, purveyor of gardening tools and materials, being away on a business trip, Mrs. Brooks took the witness stand. Yes, when my husband is away, I run the business. I'm completely familiar with all his records. Oh, you are, are you? What about it? It was less than two years ago. We sold a tin of wheat killer to Mr. Ashley. The brand was that type which contains arsenic. The third and last witness was housemaid Sarah Freeman. Mr. Ashley was in the pantry where the wine was kept for ten minutes at least that Sunday. I know, because he held me up setting the table and all. Did she serve any particular item that day? There was the wine. It was Mrs. Ashley's favorite brand. She always took a glass with a big meal of the day. The bottle was open in the pantry. And, of course, Mr. Ashley did not drink any that Sunday. I offered it to him myself. He refused, and I poured some for the poor lady. The verdict of the coroner's jury is obvious, isn't it? Well, here's a pretty kettle of fish. A coroner's court not only finding in favor of murder, but naming the murderer. Nobody could say they were slow to come to a decision, sir. On the contrary, Sergeant. I only hope they haven't been a little too fast. Oh, well, we shall see. 
Meantime, thank goodness our responsibility is going to be a shared one from now on. You mean it's a case for the yard, sir? No doubt about it. Put me through to London. I want to speak to Inspector Glenn at Scotland Yard. This is Superintendent Maxwell. You remember the case I sent you the papers on last week, Inspector? The Ashley case? Oh, yes. Any developments? There certainly are. It's possible I'd like you to come down here straight away. I'm glad Scotland Yard has come into this, Inspector. What with the verdict and all, we're hardly equipped down here to complete the evidence. The verdict, yes. We find that Helen Ashley died of acute arsenical poisoning and that the poison was administered by her husband, John Ashley. I've seen a few cases with more complete evidence in my time. Yeah, no doubt. So have I. But what can we do? Besides arrest Ashley and have him arraigned? Nothing, I'm afraid. Nothing at all. Well, he hardly seems the type to obstruct justice by running away. Far from obstructing justice, John Ashley helped the authorities in every way he could. I understand, Inspector. Uh, in what did you say your name was? Glenn. Inspector William Glenn, CID. Yes, yes, of course. I assume you'll be looking for the weed killer there's been so much talk about. Yes, we will. Yes, well, you'll find it in the garage with the gardening things. It's in there somewhere. Exactly where, I'm afraid I can't tell Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ashley. Now, if you're quite ready, shall we go along? Yes, why not? If you'll just precede me. It's quite warm out, I gather. I doubt if I need a top coat. No, and my car's at your door. There he I'm sorry, I didn't know they'd gathered out here. We could have used the back way. Oh, no matter. I can face them. I won't do anything but call names. John Asher was formally charged the next morning and held for the next assizes. The case for the Crown was not remarkable for its completeness. Inspector Glenn was a witness. The defendant admitted possessing the weed killer... In fact, he helped us to find it in his garage. Have you uncovered any evidence, Inspector, to indicate that my client did, in fact, administer the poison? Poison is almost always given in secret. One rarely has a witness to the fact. Dr. Gordon repeated his testimony at the coroner's inquest. There was no cross-examination. Sarah Freeman, on the other hand, was the subject of quite intense questioning by the defense. Why did you find it worthy of remark that Mr. Ashley spent some time in your pantry? I'd never known him to be in there before. I say to you that almost every Sunday before luncheon, he did go into the pantry from the garden to wash his hands. No, he didn't. Many, many times. No, he always went upstairs. I submit to you that it was a long way to the bathroom upstairs. Not very. Do you realize that Mr. Ashley is in peril of his life? Yes, sir, I do. And you stand here swearing that it was unusual for him to use the pantry to wash his hands? Yes, sir, I do. Sarah Freeman... Are you telling the truth? I swore on a Bible, sir. Are you telling the truth? Yes, sir, I am. No further questions. Next in the parade of witnesses was Nurse Thomas. She told her story, her experience, and her suspicions. Once again, counsel for the defense took over. You are a practical nurse, is that correct? I am. You are not registered. Your training has not been formed. I know my job. Answer the question. I know my job. But you are not a registered nurse. I am a practical nurse. When you left the Ashley house at nine o'clock, were you satisfied that the patient was in no danger? I had to go home. If you felt she was in danger, would you have gone? I had to go home. For personal reasons? 
My mother is past 80. My children needed their dinner. I suggest to you, Mrs. Thomas, that a registered nurse would not have left. I know my job. Then you were satisfied that the patient was in no danger. I had to leave. I told Mr. Ashton... Did the patient complain to you about the medicine? She complained to the maid. The maid told me. What did you do about it? I tasted it myself. Did the medicine affect you? Not at all. What was the dose? Two teaspoonfuls and a little water three times a day. Did you give the medicine before you left? I did. And you were satisfied there was no danger to the patient? I was... I had to go when I did. Very well. You had to go when you did. That is all. The stubbornness, the slight irregularities in behavior of this nurse seemed to be having an effect on the jury. There was a feeling of impatience, even of doubt, in the courtroom as counsel for the defense called... Miss Joy Ashley, please. The girl, quiet, composed, took the stand in her father's defense. Miss Ashley, I know you realize that your father is on trial here for his life. I do. Can you say without reservation that you're going to tell the absolute truth? Yes, sir, I am. If you had any doubt of his innocence, what would you do? Tell the truth. My mother is dead. If I thought for a moment that my father had done it, even then I would tell the truth. Very well. Now then, the three of you had luncheon together that day. We did. At the same time, from the same main dishes? Yes, sir. There has been some doubt cast on the contents of a certain bottle of wine. Your former housemaid has testified that the bottle was nearly empty at the end of the meal, that she threw the bottle away. Was this common practice, do you know? It was. I see. Now then, what do you recall concerning the serving of that wine that day? Sarah, the maid, offered it to my father first, as she always did. Did he accept it? No, he did not. What did the maid do next? She offered it to my mother. Mother took some. And then? Then Sarah offered it to me. I let her fill my glass. It was excellent. I asked for some more. I remember mother expressing her surprise that I should drink two glasses of wine. Thank you, Miss Ashley. That is all. It was dramatically staged. The Crown had no questions for Joy Ashley. The defense rested. After a brief recess, he began his summation. Quickly, he reviewed the evidence as presented, never denying the fact that Helen Ashley had died of arsenical poisoning. But he did conclude. We have made no attempt to deny the scientific facts of this case. But I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that at no time has my client's behavior even suggested guilt. More. I suggest that at no point has my honored colleague proved motive, much less the actual administration of the lethal dose. And I go on to suggest that there exists a reasonable doubt concerning my client's guilt in this matter. He has pleaded not guilty. I suggest that not guilty is the only proper verdict in the case of the Crown versus John Ashley. The jury was out for three hours. The verdict was brief. We find the prisoner not guilty. John Ashley was a free man. But one thing he never learned, not to the day of his death, that privately the jury sent this message in writing to the judge who presided at the trial. We are satisfied on the evidence that Helen Ashley received a dangerous dose of arsenic on Sunday, July 16th, 
but we are not satisfied that it was the immediate cause of her death. Nor does the evidence satisfy us concerning how or by whom this arsenic was administered. We cannot take a man's life when reasonable doubt such as this exists in our minds. We have therefore returned the verdict, not guilty. And still today, that tin of weed killer has its place in the Black Museum. Helen Ashley died of arsenical poisoning. There was no question about that. There was grave question as to how the poison was administered. But whether it was in the wine or the food or the medicine, no one knows. John Ashley died some few years after his trial in poverty, a weary, broken man. In his case, the doctor certified his death and no question was raised, save by those who remembered the charges against him and the wagging tongues of the gossips in the kindly-seeming English village where he'd made his home. Those who remembered it cause for thought. Could it be said that John Ashley died by gossip? Certainly not by any other poison. Now, until we meet next time, we meet in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum. I remain as always... Obediently yours. As here lies death. All the ways and means of death. Guns, of course, abound in plenty, but there are other simpler objects. Things that were never meant for murder. Now, this gold trophy. A famous sportsman climaxed a great career by winning this. Later, it was an exhibit in his trial. It was proved he had used it to batter a man to death. He has a knitting needle, perhaps used to knit for absent friends for children not yet born. And it was put to more lethal use, to end a life. Ah, here we are. Here's the canvas bag. It was once a bag used to hold provisions in a Northampton grocery store. Later on, it became more famous, but we anticipate Let's begin the story not with a canvas bag, but with a certain young woman who at her home in Birmingham was packing her suitcases. Here's another dress, Mary. Oh, thanks, Mother. And your slippers. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that must be all. Let's just have another look round. You don't want to forget anything. No, that's right. Oh, here you are, just as well I looked. Some stockings. Oh. Well, I... I think that's all. Yes. I'll just lock my suitcase. Mary? What, Mother? Are you sure you'll be all right? Oh, of course. It seems such a strange arrangement, you going all the way to London alone. But what's strange about it? Tom's working in London, saving for our passages to Canada. He can't come to fetch me. Travel all that way alone. Oh, Mary, let me come with you. No, Mother. I'm not a child. You're an almost married woman, but that doesn't mean your mother still can't worry about oh, you. Mother, really? Look, I'll be perfectly all right. Tom and I are... are getting married when I reach London. A month later, we'll be on our way to Canada. And we'll lose you. It's so sad. You'll write as soon as you reach London, won't you, darling? Yes, of course I will. 
And don't worry, please. I'll be all right. A girl leaving home to get married, an anxious mother, nothing very new about that. Except that the girl never went to London. The following day, her train arrived in Northampton, where she was tenderly greeted by a charming man, some years older than herself. Hello. Hello. Here I am, Mary. Oh. My dear Mary. Oh, darling. I've been waiting here for, for a moment. I thought you... <laughs> what, that I might have deserted you? <laughs> Hardly, my sweet. Did you have much trouble with your family? Yes, a little. Dad was anxious, and, uh-huh. and you know what Mother is. She worries terribly. Yes. You you told them the story about meeting Tom in London. Uh-huh. And they believed it. Oh, good. Oh, darling, it's wonderful to be with you. Come, <laughs> um, Mary, I, I found lodgings in St. John's Street. Oh, good. But listen, since you've told your parents you were meeting Tom Reynolds in London, we well, might as well continue the deception, eh? How? Well, to the landlady, you'll be Mrs. Reynolds. And I, of course, shall be Mr. Reynolds. It might be better if you called me Tom. The landlady found Mr. and Mrs. Reynolds a charming couple, so devoted, so very much in love. Good afternoon. I'm Mr. Reynolds. I wrote to you about a room. Oh, yes, Mr. Reynolds. I was expecting you today, just like you said in the letter. <laughs> and this is my wife, Mary. Uh, pleased to meet you, Mrs. Reynolds. I expect you'd like to see the room right away. Yes, I, I would. Well, if you'll just follow me, there's only one flight of stairs. Let me carry the bag, dear. It's too heavy for you. All right. Have you uh, any idea how long you'll be staying, Mr. Reynolds? Well, I can't tell you at the moment. It, it depends on circumstances, doesn't it, sweetheart? Ah. Yes, dear. Why, it's Mr. Reynolds. I didn't know it was so late. Well, my wife's asleep, Mrs. Marsh. I thought I'd just pop in to tell you that we're leaving next week. Leaving? Uh-huh. Well, isn't that rather unexpected? I was talking to Mrs. Reynolds only yesterday, and she said... Yes, she... but you see, I've had some news from friends of mine in Canada. In Canada? Yes. We're going to Canada, Mrs. March. Oh. We're leaving from Liverpool next week. Oh, that will be nice for you, Mr. Reynolds, and for your sweet wife, too. Yes. Oh, but there is one other thing. Huh? I'd be very glad if you wouldn't say anything of this to my wife. You see, she's not quite sure that she really wants to go to Canada, and... Well, I think it'll only upset her if anyone talks to her about it. Oh, of it. course. I, I, I wouldn't breathe a word, particularly since you've asked me not to. Thank you so much, Mrs. Marsh. We'll be giving up our room on Friday. Uh-huh. I'll arrange for a car to call for the luggage early in the day. So considerate the landlady thought, such a gentleman. On Friday morning, she said goodbye to the couple with reluctance. At least she said goodbye to Mr. Reynolds who explained that his wife had gone ahead to the railway station. But even the nicest of lodgers are only a passing memory in the landlady's mind, and she might never have thought of the young couple again if it hadn't been for the events that occurred some weeks afterwards. On the high road from Rugby to Northampton, two men were walking home after work. Well, Bert, uh, what do you think of Jimmy's chances on Saturday? 
They want it to be better than last week, eh, Sam? Yeah, I should say so. <laughs> hey, hey, look down there, and it's beside the road. What do you see? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it looks like a canvas bag. Ah, well, there's something inside it. Ah, well, what's that all over it? Lamb, isn't it? Oh, probably a dead dog. Come on, I'll buy you a pint. Yeah. Hey, 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 ain't no dead dog. But, look, will you? An arm. I can see it plain. Oh, crazy. Come on, Sam. Huh? This is for the police. The local police recovered the body and Scotland Yard was summoned. Inspector Courtney, accompanied by Detective Sergeant Finlay, arrived in Northampton. They met the doctor who had conducted the postmortem. The body was that of a woman, Inspector. Have you uh, any idea of her age, Doctor? Youngish. I'd say in her twenties. In height, a little over five feet. Slight build. And in uh, what state was the body? Dismembered and partially decomposed. And the uh, cause of death? Have you any idea about that? There's no way of telling, Inspector. The only thing you can take for granted is that she was murdered. The yard men had the dual task there. They had to track down the murderer, but first and foremost, they had to find out who had been murdered. They set out to examine the evidence. This canvas bag might give us a lead, sir. Uh, yes. Uh, now, what's that writing on it, Sergeant? It's the name of a local merchant, J. Gregory, Northampton. Yes, the name's clear enough, uh... Luckily, the lime didn't rot it away. As I'd say, it was meant to, sir. Yes, I'd say so too, Sergeant. I think we'll call on Mr. Gregory. Was this a lucky break early in a difficult case? It seemed not. When the London detectives interviewed J. Gregory in his Northampton warehouse, the merchant could give them little help. Yes, uh, it's my bag, all right, Inspector. No mistaking that, but how did it get in there? Well, we, uh, we thought you might be able to tell us that. Well, I assure you I can't. These canvas bags are used for transporting groceries between this warehouse and my several shops in the town. And they're, uh, what, uh, handled by your employees? Yes. Are they ever given out to the public? Oh, no, they're not. Were you aware that one was missing? Well, <laughs> well hardly, Inspector. I have upwards of a hundred of these bags and a lot more to do than count them. Yes, yes, of course, yes. But now, you understand the gravity of this situation. Yes. A woman has been found dead. Murdered. Murdered? Her body wrapped in one of your bags. Inspector, I, I can only assure you I know nothing whatever about it. At this stage, Mr. Gregory, not knowing the identity of the murdered woman, the bag is our only clue. Now, you do appreciate that. Yes, yes, of course, sir, that I'd like to talk to one of your employees who might have handled these bags and who might have been in the position to take one or even give one to somebody else. Inspector, I'll see to it my staff are available. Thanks. As a matter of fact, you can begin with my warehouse manager, my own brother. Oh, yes, thank you. Yes. Uh, wait, I I'll get him. George? Huh? George, uh, come here, will you? Presently, the obliging Mr. Gregory returned with his brother, the warehouse manager. He, too, was courteous and polite to the detectives, and only too ready to answer the questions they asked him. Now, uh, where do you live, Mr. Gregory? In Birmingham. Seven High Street, Birmingham. 
And uh, are you married? Yes. Wife and, and two children. And you live at home? Well, sometimes I stay here at the warehouse. You know, because of the distance involved in travel, you understand? Oh, yes, perfectly, perfectly. Now, tell me, have you ever lent or given anyone outside the firm one of these canvas bags? Well, I don't like to mention it, but... Well, go on, George. Tell the inspector whatever he wants to know. Did you give away one of these bags? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I did, John. I, I know it was against regulations, but... Well, a tramp came in one day asking for some scraps of food. And yes, and... Uh, well, sorry for him, you know. I just, yes, quite, quite. I gave him a couple of tins and well, a canvas bag to carry them in. Sorry, John, but that was the only occasion I have given one away. Now, could you tell me how long ago would this have been? Oh, I suppose about six weeks. Perhaps a bit longer. I'm afraid I can't remember the exact date. Well, thanks very much, Mr. Gregory. I... I I don't suppose you can help us in this matter of the murdered woman. I mean, you've no idea who it might be. None whatsoever, Inspector. I'm sorry. Well, thank you very much indeed, gentlemen. Good day to you. Good day. The inspector left the warehouse deeply disappointed. It seems that the trail led nowhere. For the inspector believed this story of the tramp that George Gregory had told him. There's no reason why he should not have believed it. But today... Evidence that proved the lie can be seen in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. There are hundreds of women reported missing every year throughout England. Now to the local police stations throughout the land, the messages went out in a long and slow search to find the identity of the murdered woman. Desire information on any woman reported missing within past two months. Special attention to young woman about five feet in height of slight build, well-dressed. In answer to your inquiry, we've checked all missing persons approximating to the description given in the Glasgow area during the last two months. There are three missing persons whose descriptions might fit the one given, and further investigation is being made in each case. I shall report further within the next seven days. Uh, hello, sir. Uh, this is Scotland Yard. Uh, we've been looking into your inquiry, and we find that in the London area there are 27 cases of missing persons... Uh, that would seem to justify investigation in relation to your inquiry. Uh, from preliminary inquiries, 13 of these cases can already be discounted. On the remainder, further inquiries are still being made. Uh, we'll be in touch with you later, sir. Goodbye. The reports came flooding into Scotland Yard. The leads faithfully followed. Dead ends, all of them. The investigation into murder was bogged down because nobody knew who had been murdered. There's another one, Inspector. People by the name of Wilson in Birmingham. Worried about their daughter. Oh, I never knew there were so many youngsters who run away from home. Well, still have it checked, Sergeant. Right, sir. Another patient inquiry begins. When did your daughter leave home? Where was she going? Have you heard from her? The questions were asked, the answers were written down, and the result was sent to Scotland Yard. Hmm. Hmm. Wilson, yes. Uh, 
Number 9, High Street, Birmingham. Left for London to marry a young man named uh, Tom Reynolds. Seems like she didn't get that, huh? Yeah. Family had a letter from Reynolds, just a sort of friendly note, no mention of the girl. I understand young Reynolds went to Canada, sir. He was once engaged to the girl, but they broke it off. Oh, yes. The next thing, when he was in London, the girl had a letter from him asking her to marry him and go out to Canada. Yes, but did the family see the letter? No. It was all pretty hurried. They were upset, but she seemed to be able to get her own way. Oh, I've heard this kind of thing before. Now... I wonder who the man was. Not Tom Reynolds, that's certain. His letter to the family is enclosed there, sir. Oh, let's see it, Rip. Yes. Now, rough crossing. How is everyone? Misspelled neighbors. No, no, no. He doesn't mention her. Now, what was her name? Mary, sir. Mary Wilson. Mm -hmm. Nine High Street, Birmingham. Sergeant. Sergeant. That seems familiar. To me, too, sir. I can't quite place it, Wait though. a minute, wait a minute, I've got it. What, Inspector? Uh, George Gregory, that warehouse manager. His address is 7 High Street, Birmingham. Number 7? Well, that means he lives next door. Patience had paid off again. Careful and painstaking methods had given them a new lead, or rather, the renewal of an old lead. For the canvas bag had first led them to the Gregory warehouse. The detectives went back to Northampton, back to interview George Gregory. Mary Wilson, Inspector? Well, of course I knew Mary Wilson. Now, uh, tell me, when did you last see her, Mr. Gregory? Oh, some time ago. She went to Canada, you know. She, she married a young chap named Reynolds. Yes, but uh, did she marry him? Well, to the best of my knowledge, she did. You said I knew Mary Wilson. Mm -hmm. Why the past tense? I don't know. Well, don't you always use the past tense when you're not likely to see a person again? Oh, you don't think you'll see her again? Well, Inspector, with her married and living in Canada, that'd hardly be likely, Inspector. George Gregory seemed at ease. His answers rang true. It could be nothing but a strange coincidence. Inspector Courtney gave certain instructions. I want a cable sent to Tom Reynolds in Canada. Find out if he married Mary Wilson or not. The odds are he's still single. Then Courtney went to Birmingham, to number nine High Street, where he talked to Mary's mother. I, uh, I don't want to alarm you, Miss Wilson, but I'm from Scotland Yard and I want to make certain inquiries. Scotland Yard? Oh, my Mary's done nothing wrong, has she? Of course not. No, no. Tell me, Mrs. Wilson, do you really think your daughter might have gone to Canada with her young man? Oh, I don't know what to think, sir. I was always puzzled. I mean, I mean, look, the way she seemed to patch things up with Tom. Yes. Uh, did you question that? No, I didn't say much. I was glad, really. About her marrying the young man? Yes. Well, you see, for a while I was worried there was another man she seemed to like. But too much, if you know what I mean. Oh, you uh, disapprove? Oh, Mary was never one to take criticism, but I didn't like it, I can tell you. Was the uh, other man older? He was, old enough to know better. Him with a wife and two children of his own. I tell you, I was relieved when I thought Mary was going away to marry Tom Reynolds. Now, there's one more question I must ask you, Mum. Yes, Inspector? The name of this attentive gentleman. 
Well, I... I don't like to make anything of it in my mind. No, but uh, I'd uh, like to know his name. Well, he happens to live next door, and his name is George Gregory. We've had a reply to your Canada cable, sir. Okay, Sergeant, go ahead and read it. Tom Reynolds is living in Ottawa. He's a bachelor. Last time he saw Mary Wilson was in Birmingham three months ago. What about his letter from London? There was no letter from London. It was beginning to add up. Point by point, link by link, a chain of circumstantial evidence was being forged. Forged by the patient police. I think he's our man, Sergeant. And imagine it, sir. He's been here under our noses since the very first clue you picked up. Yes, the canvas bag led us right to him. But we haven't tied it up yet. What's the next move, sir? Mary Wilson left for London to meet Reynolds. Or so it seems she told her parents. Yes, it seems more than likely, sir, that they came here. So they must have lived somewhere, she and the man she met. Now the detectives went through the town, front streets and back streets, fashionable hotels and cheap boarding houses. They went wherever there was a sign, rooms to let. Well... We're from Scotland Yard, ma'am. We're inquiring about a young couple who might have stayed here some, oh, six weeks to two months ago. No, not here. Only tech regulars. Had all my boarders for the past 12 months. Thank you, ma'am. Sorry to have troubled you. They ran the whole gamut of landladies. The suspicious landladies, the mean, the garrulous landladies, the kind, the generous, the curious. Then in a lodging house in St. John Street, their work paid off. A young couple? Yes, I've had a few. What was their name? We're not sure what name they might have been using. Oh, you mean Crooks. Well, let me see. Oh, it, it couldn't have been that nice young couple, Mr. and Mrs. Reynolds. Now, it What was their name? Reynolds. Uh, Tom Reynolds? Yes, I believe it was. Such a nice man. Oh, and his young wife was named Mary. She was awfully sweet. Mrs. Marsh... Can you give me a description of Mary Reynolds? Why, yes, I think so. Short, uh, about five feet tall, brown mm -hmm. hair, rather pretty. Yes. Not much help, I'm afraid. I can't remember any other details. Oh, you helped a lot, thanks. And the man? Tall, dark hair, and a small mole on his left cheek, older than her. Uh -huh. Oh, but he was very nice indeed. Oh, surely they couldn't have done anything wrong. Uh, uh, Mrs. Marsh, uh, can you, I want to attend the police station tomorrow morning at ten? Me? Why, sir? Uh, well, we'll be having an identification parade at ten sharp. All right, uh, quiet, everyone. Uh, I've got together a group of eight people, Inspector. Uh, thanks, Sergeant. Uh, Mrs. Marsh, I want you to try and identify the man you knew as Tom Reynolds. All right, Inspector, but really, I know we and his wife went to Canada. Nevertheless, if you don't mind, just walk slowly down the line and examine each man. Eight men. A couple of detectives, two men taken out of the cells, one recruited off the street, and in the middle of them... A protesting, indignant George Gregory. It's not this man. No, this. 
No, not him either. Why, Mr. Reynolds? Gregory, Gregory, There were enough policemen present to overpower the hastily departing Mr. Gregory, who was immediately arrested on a charge of having murdered Mary Wilson. Today, the evidence that brought about his downfall, the canvas bag that first directed police attention to him, occupies a place of honor in the Black Museum. George Gregory killed the woman, he said, because she was too much in love with him to let him go, but he couldn't afford the scandal that might arise if he continued his association with her. Not a very nice reason, but then, the reason for murder seldom are. Anyway, George Gregory was tried and convicted and paid for his crime one morning at 8 o'clock. And now, until we meet next time in this same place for another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obedient for yours. Well, listeners, you survived the mega episode. Congratulations. And I hope you really enjoyed it. The Black Museum really is one of a kind. These episodes don't follow the standard formula. They have a slower pace than most, are methodical in the way they introduce their characters, and of course, the legendary Olsen Wells as the narrator. That voice, it'll resonate right through you. Here's one of my favorite quotes from him about narratives and stories. If you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you end your story. Simple but sage advice and true. And did any of you pick up the Bluebeard comment made by one of the actresses at 45 minutes into this podcast? It is such a specific reference based on an old story that I even narrated on this show. Episode 351, Fairy Tales Bluebeard. Check it out if you haven't heard it. It'll give you some context at the comment. Blew me away at how specific it was, folks, and how rewarding it is to know that reference in such an old show like this. Mates, Wednesday, I'm going to aim to bring you something different yet again, but I want to leave that as a surprise. I'll also be doing readings of two new iTunes reviews, so if you want to leave a review for me to read out and thank, please do. It is not too late. Swing over to my iTunes page, leave a little review, and your name or alias, and I'll be sure to read it out. Stay awesome, which isn't hard for you lot. And as always, till next, we meet.